House of Games, How Neuroscience Explains My Traumatic Childhood. Chapter 2, Childhoods, My Father's, My Mother's, Mine. Follow the lie, or the silence, or the omissions. Follow the empty secret, because I'll tell you one. No one comes from nowhere. My father, despite his absolute tight lip on the topic, did have a childhood. He grew up somewhere. The lie? He grew up in the same city we were growing up in, and yet there was no landmark, there were no friends, no old neighborhood, no old high school. There was no first job or first girlfriend. There was no team sport or favorite movie house. There were no trips to the beach or other hobbies. And outside of his nuclear family, there were no other relatives. How had it never struck me that this was strange? It was a lie. So I did some digging. This was before the absolute shock of my understanding that my parents were both criminals. That disturbing dissonance, unlike any other, has had such a profound effect that while I've unstuck all those implicated parts of myself, I am alone. I have air and breath and mass. There's a physiological entity separate from them. My sympathy was a lifeline to those two long-deceased criminals. Everything from the point of realization forward is exhumation. It is investigation. So I sit alone, not hidden in the time warp of dissociation, but a criminal investigator deciding on the case. Take it further. Exhume the extent of their crimes or leave it alone. You see a writer, a former hostage, a scapegoat, a recovering alcoholic has to decide how much truth the world needs. You do. You sacrifice a part of yourself and toxic people say, why don't you forgive? Why don't you forget? You have to let this go. But they know nothing, absolutely nothing about epigenetics. I want to say to them, you idiots, don't you know in the words of Bessel van der Kolk, MD, the body keeps score. And if you don't think there's an evolutionary revenge for keeping the secret, you're fucking crazy. You remember or you hurt others. Simple, proven fact. Bessel van der Kolk, I'm quoting here, as long as you keep secrets and suppress information, you are fundamentally at war with yourself. So what am I to do? Before the epiphany, I was a rogue biographical investigator. Unlike my academic researcher self, I welcomed bias. I proved a pre-dawn hypothesis. I was going to find out, A, my father was terribly mistreated as a child, or his brain tumor later in life made him act like a psychopath, and B, my poor mother's homicidal tendencies, her vile brand of sadism, was the result of psychosurgery that left her without a conscience. When you search for the truth, a truth that does not exist, I can tell you it is fundamentally exhausting. You're running at breakneck speed with a force holding onto your collar. You can hardly breathe, then you exhaust yourself, and you've gone nowhere. Well, not nowhere. I did spend some time in the foreign land of my parents' youth. I filled in the landscape, not realism, still impressionism, but with images coming into focus. My mother's little southern town completely infested with the KKK of the deep southern Georgia in the 1950s. Her poverty as a sharecropper's daughter. Okay, your cue. This is where you feel sympathy for the poor girl. I'll allow it, your honor. My mother had a hard life. That much I proved. But remember, one must follow the lie. 
That is the sweeping realist epic of the 1940s American poverty, the ruthless dichotomies of wealth, class, race, the dramatic biblical weather, the blood of slaves and hate feeding the cotton and tobacco and pecans and soybeans, the saga of illegitimate children and genographs tracking epigenetic effects of trauma with a capital T. That kind of trauma, the unspeakable acts of inhumanity, the cascading malignant embers of Southern America, the abridged biography as mom told it. And I'm paraphrasing here. 1941, born to sharecroppers in Georgia, the baby, a sassy little thing named Bunny, closest to Lewis, who died of alcoholism in a car crash, a brother, best friend Jack, who did things like tied her to a tree and left her all day. Mind you, ropes and ligatures are a central theme in my childhood. A sadistic woman child with a penchant for bondage and knot theory, or more academically, nodology. She, nor I, knew there was an actual study of knots, and I wouldn't call her a knot scholar anyway. She only knew a couple of basic knots. Most proficiently, the simple hogtie. Google any bondage site, and the instructions are pretty easy to follow. Of course, my mother, her learning was an apprenticeship. Southern country folk, as she called herself, didn't need formal training. She'd grown up being hogtied by her brother. Yet, Wiki Howe cautions. Hogtying a pig is when you bind its four legs together with a rope. This is done by keeping the pig from walking away or standing up. A pig should only be hogtied when it's being quickly treated or branded, and not when you want the pig restrained for a long period of time. Hogtying can be a tricky process, so it's best to act quickly and carefully to avoid injury to yourself and to the pig. To hogtie, you should secure the area, gently restrain the pig, and tie the pig's four ankles together with a rope. My mother skipped the first three steps because she didn't have to chase and wrestle us down, being careful not to harm herself in the process. Indeed, no harm would come to my mother when she hogtied us. You can use your leg to hold the pig in position as you reach for its feet. If that doesn't work, consider using a pig board to restrain it. Ease pressure off the pig if it's squealing in pain. Tie the rope around the pig's four ankles. Start with any ankle and loop it around several times. Then pull the rope under the loops and through. Move on to the next ankle and repeat the process until all four ankles have been secured with the same rope. Make sure the rope has been pulled tight so that all four ankles are pulled together. It is ideal to have someone help you during the hog tying process as it is difficult to restrain and tie the pig at the time. Create a square knot to secure the hog tie. Once all four ankles have been tied, hold both free ends of the rope vertically. Cross the left side of the rope over the right side and pull it back through. Then cross the right side of the rope behind the left side. Loop it under and through the left side. Pull on both sides of the rope to tighten the knot. And my mother skipped the last step. Check to make sure the hog tie isn't too loose or too tight. Back away from the pig for the moment to make sure it can't escape from the hog tie. Look at the pig's ankles to see if the rope appears too tight or too loose. I can testify it was never too loose. But I'm not actually telling you anything you don't know. Likely you don't need a lesson in hog tying. It was for my benefit, not the salacious, perverse mental representations of an abused child. No, the step-by-step instructions give me reflection on the conscious choices during my abuse. Each knot, each knee in the back, 
each step my mother chose. This is a very, very important aspect of criminal behavior. This is what separates good from evil, but you know that already. Besides, this chapter is not about my mother. It's about my father. I can't get through a page without her creeping in. She was a flamboyantly repulsive smokescreen. Pause. Time to consider the source. Is the author too much, too cruel? Is it unresolved anger, a person's hate poisoning themselves? Judge for yourselves. Don't pity, because I don't envy you. It's hard to follow the lie in a landscape of lies. Certain children, my younger self included, can't understand the simple fact. Some adults lie to you, and the very nature of that lie is the contradiction between what you see with your own eyes, hear with your own ears, feel with your own body, and what they tell you you are experiencing. This is an existential lie, an unfair tactic. The lie is packaged, and that package has a label, and that label says, believe me, not yourself. So that's what I did every day, all the time, starting at the youngest age. I'm hitting you because of you. I'm throwing your bowl of cereal across the room because of you. I'm tying you up with neckties because of you. I'm giving you an enema because of you. I'm pinching you because of you. I'm biting you because of you. I'm hitting you with a hairbrush because of you. I'm scaring you because it's fun. I'm making you steal because you are daring. I'm making you lie to the doctor because I injured you. So it would look like someone else injured you because you have bladder problems, because you have something wrong with your body, and because it's likely you have a collapsed bladder and you need surgery because you're defective. And the surgery involves the doctor stapling your bladder inside you. I injured you because of you. I hold you down because it's a fun game. And your crying and not liking the game means there's something wrong with you because it is fun and I do it because it's fun and you're not liking me on top of you with my knees on top of your shoulders like a farmer would tie a pig means you don't know how to have fun. I smother you with one hand holding your nose and mouth because it's fun and people do fun things and it's funny. You are defective because you don't understand fun and because you think maybe you can die because you can't get air and you don't see how funny it is to panic as you struggle against your mother's heavy weight. You're stupid because you don't know that you can't die when someone is smothering you. I'll stop here for now. After all, most people can take only so much. I can take only so much. So much truth. Let's fast forward just for a moment. 2019. I sat in the psychologist's office. It's a makeshift office in the back of a small craftsman house in Portland, Oregon. The doctor is an adjunct lecturer I knew almost 10 years before. He taught a trauma class in the psychology department. This was almost a philosophical or sociological study, unlike the clinical discipline I now teach at the university. But he was a teacher a long time before. I had taken the class because there had been an unexpected winter in my life, and it seemed every day there were flurries, and the psychologist I had seen at the time, back 10 years before, was a sexual predator. So I wanted to understand what was wrong with me. So I took the psychology class, the psychology of trauma. 10 years later, I called him, made an appointment, and then I sat in his makeshift office. He was 70 years old or so, Dutch. He was a disciple of the early interpersonal biology pioneers, Bessel van der Kolk, which I've already mentioned. The body keeps score. 
the footnote, if there were one, would be the premise for the book or even the summary. Developmental trauma is where trauma meets attachment. You see, certain research has found that when children are abused, their brains do a funny thing. The areas of their brain associated with fear and love both light up at the same time. So when a parent abuses a young child, both love and fear are stimulated in their brain. They are speaking of the amygdala. Love is a chemical language. Dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. Back to the psychologist's office. The 70-year-old child of a Holocaust survivor, psychologist who worked with war veterans so long ago, they still called it shell shock. Him, yes, I went to him for a treatment called EMDR, Eye Movement Desensitization Therapy. Sounds crazy. I thought so for decades, too. So, let me get this straight. You'll move your eyes back and forth, follow a light, and then you'll recall trauma, and it will move all the sludge from the part of your brain where it's stuck back over all over the other areas, and you'll no longer have PTSD. Right? Yes, that's exactly right. So, I went. Afraid again of anyone who uses a pathology lens. They can't get through the landscape of abuse. Yes, they say they understand, but they don't. Once they hit the base camp, miles before the summit, they find they can't acclimate to the atmosphere. I could have told you there was no oxygen and there would be less and less the further we went. That's why I dissociate. How else does a child survive without air? Disappear and keep hiking. Keep going. Get to the top and you'll see, you'll see everything clearly. They can't. I've met few people who can handle the conditions. And so what? Everyone isn't meant for mountain climbing? Yes, most psychologists are meant for hikes or even nature walks. Summiting Everest? K2? I think not. But since this doctor knew of far worse than I thought, he wouldn't be deterred. Except when I mentioned this, he said, no, at least soldiers had adult capacities to cope. It took less than 10 minutes of doing EMDR for me to snap into dissociation. It was so numbing and things slowed down. I spoke in rote, monotonic phrases. The cadence of my voice changed so much, he believed, others before believed, that there was another personality inside of me altogether. And why shouldn't they think that? Maybe it is another personality. One therapist once asked, God, I hated her. She was an idiot. She said, do you ever get really angry? Of course, I said. Does she have a name? Who? The person who gets angry. Oh, Lord, really? He looks at me, sitting across from me. I try to forget this is a spare room, converted therapist's office. I try to forget Because if I think of being alone in a house, in a spare room, in a bedroom, with a man, my brain tries as it may to contemplate a reason. And when no reason is available, snap, I'm here but not there. But you can still speak, he says. He understands trauma, I think. Yet I know what he's thinking. He's thinking this abrupt change, the abrupt dissociation is another personality. It's another state of mind. And I love it. Love it. I love the numb tranquility of dissociation. I can watch, floating. I am the eyes, but nothing more. You can still speak. Oh, God, of course I can. I had to speak. But I'm there, I'm here, and I'm there, and I remember. 
My father is sitting in a chair at the kitchen. This is the same house where he choked me, threw me against the wall, and choked me. I was 17. The same house where he knocked, knocked, knocked down the hallway as he entered the kitchen. My boyfriend and I in the living room. My father imagining us having sex. There was sex, but my father's repeated show of making his presence known as if he didn't want to catch us naked or in a compromising position. My father, always, always in a white, ratty, terry cloth robe. And there I was in the kitchen in this memory. This time, just him and me. And I'm telling him about Tina Turner's new song. I say, I think of you. I think you'll really like it. I'm your private dancer, a dancer for money. I'll be what you want me to be. Is that weird for a 17-year-old to sing to her father? Smoking a cigarette, pink pumps with jeans just like the girl in the Pepsi ad. A girl I thought was so beautiful that I could possibly be something like. You look like a whore in those shoes. Is this a normal interaction between a father and a 17-year-old daughter? Even if the father had a brain tumor. Even if the daughter is promiscuous. Was I, though? I had a boyfriend, a real boyfriend, going on two years. Still, okay, I was trouble. Let's not bubblegum sugarcoat this. I was a kleptomaniac, a drinker, a promiscuous girl. I'm your private dancer, a dancer for money. I'll do what you want me to do. What do you see, he asked, the therapist, the Dutch therapist, the son of a Holocaust survivor. The sound moves back and forth in my ears, across my brain, the vibrations in my hand. What do I see? What do I feel? I feel disgusted. You feel disgusted. Yes. Okay, stay with that. Take a breath. You feel disgusted. Anything else? What does the room look like? It's a small kitchen in a small apartment. Okay, stay with that for a minute. Stay with the kitchen. Stay disgusted. It's space travel. It's time travel. I can see the cheap cabinets. My father lives in a shithole. It's a clean shithole because his infanticized wife cleans it, Maria. It's a clean shithole because he storms into my room and shouts, What the fuck is this? What the fuck is this? Fucking disgusting pig. Don't ever leave dishes in the sink. It's a spoon, Dad. Shut the fuck up. Open your eyes. Do you remember your safe place? Breathe and go there now. The safe place is a real place. It's Mystic, Connecticut. It's a bed and breakfast with starched, clean, white sheets. My room has a heavy wooden door with a glass doorknob. Victorian. The window is large. It's old but clean. Everything is clean and safe. And when I lock the door, the room is silent. The door is so heavy, I think it could keep anyone out, even my father. Shadows cover the night 
Whisper, whisper sweet. 